I have actually hit a wall in my faith several times over the course of my life. I have actually hit a wall in my faith several times in my life. When John Mark was four years old, I hit a ministry wall. Um, I was a bit of a workaholic. No. Yes. I was a bit of a workaholic. I was busy razzling and dazzling my congregation and anyone else who could see, look, I can hit the ball. I can hit the ball. Look at me. Tell me I'm awesome, okay? And so I was also exhausted. I was angry and I was guilt-ridden at how much I was cheating my wife, Jenny, and cheating my kids. And it kind of culminated one night. Uh, we were having a family dinner and uh, John Mark's surrogate cousins were over and uh, I was heading off to a meeting. And John says to me at age four, daddy, daddy, don't go, don't go to the meeting. And then his little friend Caleb, you know, finished me off and he goes, yeah, Uncle Max, you're always going to meetings. Stay and play with us. And okay, so I, I knew in that moment, I knew I had to change, but I didn't know how. I didn't know how. I had hit a, I had hit a wall. And it was only after I had kind of surrendered after a couple of years of wrangling with God where I was like, okay, fine, I'll go anywhere. I'll even go and pastor in California and hate you the rest of my life, God. Go ahead, go ahead, send me to California. I surrender. And then it kind of unlocks some things. In the year 2000, my parents moved to Kentucky and when we started Generations Community Church in 2004, they joined the effort. I mean, how cool is that, right? How cool is that? In 2006, I began preaching for the first time. Now, my dad helped. He helped a lot. And one of the things that my dad did is that when I started preaching in 2006, every week he would present to me a three-by-five card that would have tally marks on it for the number of times that I said, um, the number of times I said, and, oh, some of you are gasping out loud. Some of the times that he, I would say, you know, and he would have the, the tally, the amount circled, and then he would present that to me. And he was being helpful. It didn't always feel that way. <laughs> he would clip out newspaper articles of famous pastors and when they were over for dinner, he would slip them across the dining room table. Hey, did you hear about what Pastor Rick Warren is doing in California? Maybe you could do some of that here in Kentucky. And did you hear about, and so he would slip these things. For two years straight, he pushed and pushed and pushed. I don't tell this story often. He pushed for me to sit down with uh, Pete Heiss, who was at the time the pastor of Quest Community Church. And they were kind of exploding with growth at the time. And he was like, Mark, I'm telling you, if you just sat down with Pete, like he, I know you could learn some things from him. And so, so that was my dad, right, trying to help. And the look on your face says that you get how I received that help, okay? So... He retired in 2009 and uh, he volunteered for about six months and he just kind of helped me with anything that needed help in the church. And I'll never forget, it was late summer and he stood in the doorway of my old office and he said, son, I owe you an apology. I'm like, well, you haven't made somebody in the congregation mad, have you? What have you done, dad? Like, you know, what, what have you done now, right? Okay, and he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, I, I've really pushed a lot over the last few years and I had no idea what you really did as a pastor. 
And I just want you to know, I think you're doing a great job, and I'm proud of you. That night, I went home, and I was like, Jenny, my relationship with my dad just changed. Like, what is going on? Like, this is amazing. Well, four months later, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and a year later, he died. And I hit another wall. Because I was like, oh, so my relationships get fixed for the afterlife in a kind of Italian way. My stance with God was, is this how you do me? Is this how you do me, God? <laughs> right? And I hit, and I wish I could tell you that those are the only walls that I've hit, but I would be lying. And so I want to let you in on something. You will, uh, you will encounter Wow, okay, so I'm losing a range. You will encounter a wall several times over your life. You will encounter a wall where you feel like your faith is stuck. And this will happen several times over the course of your life. These walls are actually opportunities for you to let go of power and control and trust God more. That's what they are. Now, because we're Americans, we don't deal well with this. Because we're Americans, we believe that if life is easy, God is blessing you. And we believe that if life is hard, God is punishing you because you've sinned or messed up or because maybe at the end of the day, God's not the good guy wearing the white hat you thought he was. Um, we think that relationships ought to come easy. So we think when it comes to friendships, it ought to just click and we should hit it right off the bat and there should never be any conflict in those relationships at all. We think when it comes to love that we should just meet somebody, fall in love, get married, end of story. Again, that it would be easy. We think that when it comes to schooling and jobs and career that we go to school, we do our training, a job unlocks, life unfolds. And so when things aren't easy, when things don't happen quickly, we wrongly assume that we've done something wrong. We wrongly assume that God has either abandoned us or forgotten us. We wrongly assume that faith just doesn't work. What if these seasons, when you hit a wall, when you're stuck in your faith, are actually opportunities to shed inadequate concepts of God, inadequate concepts of what life really is, inadequate concepts of who you think you are? What if these seasons are opportunities for us to grow. Here are some typical walls that people face. Divorce. You, no one ever gets married thinking, you know, in 15 years, I'm going to create this giant train wreck that bankrupts me, sends me into counseling for five years, and, and then causes me to be bitter for five Christmases in a row, right? No one ever does that, and yet it happens. Uh, shattered dream you expected something to happen i know a number of people who've started a business a restaurant here in nicholasville and they were convinced it was going to take off and they were going to be awesome and it was just going to be the best thing ever because they had this recipe they had this barbecue they had this hawaiian thing and then six months later a year later two years later they're bankrupt okay a shattered dream uh, it happens with a job loss. I've known 50-some-year-olds that got cut loose, and it took them years to find something else. And in that wandering of having everybody tell you, I'm sorry, you're too old, I'm sorry, you're too old, they hit a wall. Um, death, the death of my dad was one of them. 
uh, cancer, anytime you get a big medical diagnosis, and for us Americans, the C word is the culminating pinnacle of bad diagnoses, and so cancer can be this. Uh, I've met people where it was a bad church experience and that was the wall where their faith got stuck. They, and they got a story about first church. Oh, let me tell you about Pastor Billy Ricky and first church. And out it comes. And you're like, whoa, that's pretty bad. <laughs> okay. A wayward child. You know, you raised your kids, you homeschooled, you did all the right things, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, at 20, whatever, like there is no God and I'm gonna party. And you're like, whoa, okay. So the wayward child thing car accidents, betrayal. These are, these are typical walls that we can hit, seasons where our faith seems to be stuck, okay? So if you're here today and you're younger than 25, first of all, I want to acknowledge that you're still trying to figure out Am I going to kind of carry on the faith that my parents had? Is my faith going to be a little different? What's it going to look like? And you're also trying to figure out, who exactly am I? Like, you know, am I who my parents say I am? Am I my own person? What's that? So you're still trying things out. Some of you, even though you're only 16, 17, you've already hit some walls because you've faced some big things in your family life. But for many of you, this is something down the road. And I just want to cue you into the fact that at certain points in your life, you're going to feel stuck in your faith. This is normal, okay? So what I don't want you to do is to decide faith doesn't work and kick Jesus to the curb. I want you to hang with it, okay? So uh, faith actually has a pattern to it. And if they'll put this up, this comes from two people. Uh, let's see, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick in The Critical Journey, Stages of uh, stages in the life of faith. And I find this a helpful handle for talking about how we, how we walk with God and what our faith journey kind of looks like. For many of us, it starts with this life-changing awareness of God. We went to camp, we threw our stick in the fire, we prayed a prayer, and all of a sudden we, were, we encountered a God that was full of love and forgiveness and mercy. We encountered Jesus right? And that had a change for us at a moment. And then we start this process where we get into a church and we're learning things. Hey, did you know that Jesus had 12 disciples and I can name all 12 of them. Did you know there are four gospels and not five? You know, and we learn, and then we learn stuff about the Old Testament. There aren't just 10 commandments. There are 613 of them. Okay. Or we learn, did you know Abraham's family was messed up? Okay, so we're learning things. And somewhere along the way, we start getting involved and we get our hands dirty and we're serving. A lot of people just kind of stop there. And then some other people kind of tap out there because somewhere along the way, they hit a wall. They hit one of those things we just talked about and their faith doesn't seem to be working right and they feel stuck. And so... What happens for a lot of people when they hit the wall is one of two things. Uh, some of them will decide, well, I'm going to keep going to church, but my heart and my inner life is closed. It's closed to God. It's closed to everyone else, and I'll keep serving, but that's it. Don't expect anything. Other people are a little bit more honest, and, and when they hit that wall, they just go, oh, well, faith doesn't work. See you, church. I'm out of here. I'm going to find something else. Uh, I want to encourage you to journey through the wall and stick with it. Because on the other side of the wall, you're serving again, you're doing things, but now it's different. Now it's because your identity 
is firmly rooted in God. And there's a centeredness about you. And you find that you begin to be transformed into love, right? And so I find this a helpful handle to talk about how faith develops for us. Abraham hit a wall several times in his life. At age 75, he was told, you're going to be a dad. You're going to be a dad. You're going to have a baby. And the descendants that come from that baby are going to be as numerous as the stars. And so Abraham waited and waited and waited. And he waited 11 years, do the math, 86, still no baby. So he got a servant person in the household, did what married people do, (laughs) and produced a son through Hagar. And that kind of blew up in his face. I'm just saying, read the Genesis account and you'll see for yourself. And so he waits again and waits and waits, this time 14 years before Isaac is born. So a a total length of 25 years from when God promised something to it actually coming to fruition. And then God asks him to do something that's just inexplicable. And that's where we're going to find ourselves today in Genesis chapter 22. I want to read this passage and he'll put the first verses up of the uh, uh, verses one and two. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I'll show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants along with him, along with his son Isaac. And then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We'll worship there and then we'll come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, we have the fire and the wood, the boy asked, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? So I want to draw some things out of this. First of all, we should probably have coffee sometime. This is one of those stories in the Bible that can really get you because you're like, what's going on here? And I'm not going to wade into the what's going on here part of this story, part of this account. Uh, But I want to draw some things out because it shows how Abraham has hit a wall. The first is simply take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. Doesn't Abraham have two sons? Oh, you did the math too? Right, so in Abraham's mind... There's one son that's now legitimate and another son that's now illegitimate, okay? And so there's another part of this where uh, the Hebrew word is, it's not that he's wielding a knife, he's wielding an ax. This is a cleaver that he's carrying to chop the wood 
And as, as Abraham is walking along, notice what he carries and what Isaac carries. Isaac carries the wood, and like any good dad, he's carrying the two things, the torch and the cleaver that can hurt a young boy, and he doesn't let his son carry them. And Isaac uses this term for his father. It's translated in our scriptures, father, but it's more like the Arabic term Abba, which is a, an intimate thing. Our kids, it's when they call us daddy, right? So what he's calling his father is daddy. This wall here is, an, is a wall that Abraham is hitting where God is wanting him to change, okay? I can't imagine the weariness. I can't imagine the sense of failure. I can't imagine the unbelief, the guilt, everything else that Abraham probably carried with him in addition to that cleaver and that torch up that mountain. But that's not the end of the story. Verses eight and following. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. He tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, yes, Yes, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You've not withheld from me even your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And he named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you've obeyed me and not have withheld your, even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I'll multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you've obeyed me. So they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba where Abraham continued to live. There's a verb that's repeated throughout here, see, okay? God will see to the sheep. Abraham sees a ram. Abraham calls the place Yahweh Yaira, the Lord sees. Our English translations kind of miss this verb over and over again. And it's identical to the passage that I read at the beginning of the service where God sees the plight of Ishmael, right? By the way, Abraham is changed as a result of this. Abraham's not gonna try and take things into his own hands he sees that God, in fact, is a provider. And this changed Abraham has, in a sense, open palms, a surrendered life, and is someone that God can use to bless the nations. I want to draw out some things that Pastor Pete Scazzerzo draws out in his work in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And if they'll put these things about what happens when you journey through the wall. And these are things I think we see in Abraham. We see it in the disciples who clearly hit a wall at the crucifixion of Jesus, right? There were things they thought about God, thought about how things were going to play out, had heard Jesus say things, but hadn't quite understood what Jesus meant as he was saying these things to them. And so 
what are some things that happen if you will just stay with God even when you, you feel stuck, even when your faith doesn't quite seem to work? One is you experience a greater level of brokenness. People who journey through the wall become a little less judgmental of others. They're a little bit more humble and they recognize that they don't have things figured out. Another quality of journeying through the wall is that they have a greater appreciation of holy unknowing. I'm gonna tell you right now, God's gonna do what God's gonna do. God's gonna do what God's gonna do. The older I get, the more I know this is true. Despite what I tell him to do, <laughs> God's gonna do what God's gonna do. And so uh, Aquinas put it this way, Thomas Aquinas, this scholastic scholar from what, 1500 or so, uh, a little earlier than that, 1200. Ultimate knowledge about God is to know that we do not know. What? Yeah, ultimate knowledge about God is to know that we do not know. And part of that is just admitting from time to time, I have no idea what God is up to right now, but I'm gonna trust him. I have no idea what God is up to right now, but I'm gonna trust him. That's hard, that's hard. A greater ability to wait for God. And you and I live in America, come on, we Americans, we know how to make things happen. I'm convinced that the reason the church, in a sense, is languishing in America is because we think we figured it out. So if we just mark it right, if we just have the right kind of preaching, if we just do all the right things, why, well, we'll connect with people. And no, it takes God. God changes people. God transforms societies and people and families, right? And so um, a greater ability to wait for God. And then a greater detachment to this life. And I would characterize that this way. Instead of asking yourself all the time, am I happy? Does this marriage make me happy? Does this job make me happy? Am I happy? Am I happy? The question that you ask more is, am I free? Am I more free than I used to be? I believe Jesus was the freest man who ever lived. Dallas Willard was right. Jesus was the freest man who ever lived. Am I free? So let me ask a question in light of this passage from Genesis chapter 22. In this season of life, What's the greatest obstacle that you face? In this season of life, what's the greatest obstacle that you face? So how can you take this home, okay? <laughs> I don't have practical stuff today. This one's hard, but I have some ideas. The first is recognize that your tendency, my tendency is to push and make things happen. Just Recognize, because you're an American, you are not going to want to wait. We stink at waiting. Go anywhere at Chris, uh, Black Friday. Go to a restaurant hungry and be told it's a 45-minute wait. We Americans are terrible at waiting. We just don't do it well. We don't like it. Abraham had to wait. God's people had to wait 400 years from the breath of the last prophet all the way to the birth of John the Baptist. We're gonna have to wait. So recognize that there's this tendency in you to push. And the other thing is recognize that your thinking about God, about life, about yourself may actually change. Sometimes the best thing that ever happened to you turns out to be the worst and sometimes the worst thing that ever happened to you turns out to be the best. It's weird how this works. Jenny's pastor growing up, Pastor Dick, was struck with a nerve condition 
that robbed him of movement. Started with his legs, he couldn't walk, and then gradually it worked up his body to where he ended up in this contraption that rotated him because he could not move anything but his head. God used him to impact people all over the world. And he said many times, I did not choose this, but God has used this to become one of the greatest paths of blessing in my life. I know people on the flip side who got married and, and were convinced it was the best day, the happiest day of their life, and literally 10 years later, we'll talk about that as though it was the birth of Satan in their existence, right? <laughs> like, you know people who've walked that road, okay? Sometimes the best thing that ever happened is the worst, and sometimes the worst thing that ever happened to you is the best. I used to think that life was a destination. I know, you're like, Max, how long did it take you to figure that out? I was always trying to get somewhere, trying to get somewhere in my marriage, trying to get somewhere in my ministry, trying to get somewhere. If I could just get here, Jenny and I would have these conversations. Well, someday, if we could just, I now understand life is a journey. I'm a slow learner, but I can learn, okay? (laughs) Right? recognize your thinking about God may change. And last but not least, stay with God. Stay with God. Stay with God. Don't give up and stay with God. Anyone can trust God when God is doing what you tell him to do. And let's be honest, most of what we pray in America is just, you know, it's telling God what to do. And you'll, if you ask me to pray, pray for you, often you'll hear me say some version of, oh, I have no problem telling God what to do. I'm happy to do that, right? But at the end of the day, what? God's gonna do what God's gonna do, right? So um, stay with God. Dan Rather, uh, who was a CBS News anchor for a long time back in the olden days when there were only three networks and, you know, that kind of stuff. He got to interview this woman named Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, for many, many years, was considered a Jesus-like figure because of the way she ministered to the poor. And he was thrilled that he had gotten to interview this saintly figure in the Catholic Church. And so he goes into the interview, and he asked the question, uh, Mother Teresa, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she said, well, I don't, I listen. Being an astute interviewer, he just flipped the question. He said, oh, well, in in that case, when God is speaking to you, what does he say? You know what she said? He listens. At this point, Dan Rather was bewildered, didn't know what to ask. And so she leaned in and she goes, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. (laughs) Right? So if you're, if you're in a wall right now, I want to articulate some things that you might actually be feeling. It's okay when you're in that part where you're stuck to say, I'm bewildered right now. I'm bewildered. It's okay to say, I am really angry. Mm. Uh, yes, this is a mystery. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say, God... Why have you forsaken me? It's okay to say, I'm very sad right now. I don't know what God is doing right now. I'm hurt. It's okay to say these things. But in all of that, if you find yourself at the next wall in your life, I beg you to stay with God. Show me a death and Jesus Christ will bring about a resurrection. 
Show me a death and Jesus Christ will bring about a resurrection. And not only that, but he will bring about a blessing that not just blesses you, but those around you, okay? Jesus brings life through death. Which is why I think this passage will make sense. I wanna close by reading scripture and I think now we're ready to hear what God has to say in Hebrews, okay? This is what God says and I'm using the translation of the message. In this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you to say nothing of what Jesus went through, all that bloodshed. So don't feel sorry for yourselves or have you forgotten how good parents treat children? and that God regards you as his children. My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline. Don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God's educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training. The normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us, so why not embrace God's training so that we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them, but God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. Don't give up at the wall. There's some really good stuff on the other side.